wonderful. Okay, so let's go for it. Um, so, uh, hello everyone, welcome to another episode of Chatter. Uh, today I'm here with uh, Caelan Ford, who uh, yeah, is a documentary filmmaker, a uh, former ill-fated candidate for office, the founder of um, a, well, a free school, as you described it to me, and someone who studied totalitarian and post-totalitarian systems. And the reason I came across you was your essay slash um, blog on fighting back against cancel culture. So, welcome to the show. Well, thanks very much for having me. Yeah, not a problem. Uh, yeah, so as I said, I came across your uh, your your piece that you'd written, and I was fascinated, and yeah, decided that I would love to have you on. So here we are. So um, rather than me giving like a hashed version of the story, would you like to explain how it is that you came to be cancelled and what that <laughs> means, given that you're here talking to me, and I don't think YouTube are going <laughs> to pull it down. So sure. Um... Well, I guess I can. I'll, I'll go even a little bit further back before I was cancelled. So I was cancelled in the context of I was running for office, and I was running to be a member of the Legislative Assembly in my Canadian province of Alberta. Uh, and about a month before that election campaign, I was the subject of what we now would term cancel culture. I don't think that that language had quite distilled at that point. This is 2019. Um, but it was right at the time that this was becoming a, a much more prevalent, identifiable phenomenon. Um, but I'll back up a little bit, and um, I feel the need to apologize or explain why I decided to run for office in the first place, because like, politics is uh, it's unsavory business. And um, you know, generally, I kind of adhere to the dictum that the kinds of people who want political power should usually be kept pretty far from it. Um, so so I, I need to make an excuse for myself here. Um, my background, as you mentioned in, in the intro, was in uh, since I was, I think, in my mid-teens, um, academically and professionally and in volunteer capacity related to the study of totalitarian or post-totalitarian systems and working extensively with refugees and asylum seekers and people who had fled from persecution, religious or political, in that context. Uh, predominantly in the Chinese context. So people who um, face persecution under the Chinese Communist Party. And I became sort of fascinated with the problem of political and philosophical evil and how it happens that people allow themselves to be ruled by what are very obviously evil, false ideologies like communism, like national socialism, you name it. Um, and very sensitive to the fact that the countries that succumbed to this were no less civilized or and that their people no no less intelligent than our own. And so there is a kind of um there is a, a universal susceptibility to this kind of philosophical corruption. And I was really concerned with understanding how do you identify that and how do you insulate yourself um, against um against sort of political evil uh, at a societal level and against philosophical corruption at a personal level? How do you make sure that you don't become one of those people who, um, whether sort of knowingly or just indirectly or passively, participates in, I, I'm using the word a lot, but participates in evil? How do you make sure that doesn't happen? And um, about, I'd say 10 years ago now, I started sort of noticing that a lot of the characteristics that I'd always associated with totalitarian systems were becoming more prevalent in my own society. 
And um, that's both the sort of underlying social conditions that give rise to and are conducive to totalitarianism, but also the more kind of obvious things, the self-censorship, the recognition that there are certain philosophical lines of inquiry that were increasingly off limits, um, the enforcement of a, a new kind of ideological dogma that could be questioned only at the risk of potentially losing your career or your reputation or your friends. And um, and the general repudiation of the past. Um, this is very much something that I associate with totalitarianism, right? From the French Revolution to the Khmer Rouge and onward. Um, this propensity to try to restart the calendar at year one and sever people from connections to any of the inherited wis wisdom uh, of uh, previous generations. So um, I thought, well, this is, you know, this is worrying. And I kind of had a sense that if I'm right, um, if we're headed in that direction, then politics would not be a very hospitable climate to someone like me. Uh, but I also had a sense that um, we all have an obligation to try to do something when we're faced with that rather than keep our heads down and hoping to sort of wait out the storm. So I figured I would run for office. And, uh, you know, one of the few levers that I think is available to try to change culture or arrest those trends is in the field of education. And in Canada, education is a matter of provincial jurisdiction. So that's why I ran for provincial office. So, um, yeah, so there is kind of an irony there that that this thing that we now call cancel culture is actually one of the reasons why I thought it was necessary to try to run for office um, and try to impact some reforms, particularly in the education field, that would allow people to try to sort of recover their roots in reality um, and um, and avoid this kind of um, you know fault descending into this sort of madness. So. Uh, but yeah, you know, my campaign was, um, it was going really well. I was campaigning for eight or nine months. I had a, a toddler and a newborn at home. So it was, uh, you know, it was a challenging time, but generally you know, my, I found that, uh, people were very receptive to my message and to my candidacy. And then a month before the election, um, a partisan, uh, sort of quasi news outlet that was aligned with the political party I was running against. Um, it was actually started by the a previous leader of that political party, so a very overtly partisan outlet. Um, they published an article claiming that in a private conversation years earlier, I had, according to them, echoed white nationalist rhetoric and expressed sympathy for white supremacist terrorism. Now, I had not done that. And the records of the conversation that those allegations are based on has never been produced. Um, but that's the kind of allegation. So just, that, when you uh, say, I know when you say it out loud, it sounds so stupid. <laughs> it's really stupid. Right. So it's, but, but look, here's, this is, this is the, the scenario though. Someone says, look, I have a, I have, you know, screenshots of a conversation. Now I don't have this conversation. The person who produced it, uh, has refused to um, has refused to ever make it available for independent scrutiny for authentication. He claims now that he's destroyed that record. Uh, so, right, <laughs> I see you laughing. It's it's ridiculous. Um, it but is. but this was three days after the Christchurch mosque massacre in March of 2019. So 
in that environment, this is kind of um, the weaponization of these allegations in a really cynical way. I mean, I think it's a it's a deeply cynical misappropriation of a tragedy to try to score political points, um, and in a way that is also completely and totally indifferent to the suffering of the Muslim community of immigrant communities who at that time in particular may have quite justifiably been feeling vulnerable or sort of besieged. So here they are saying that I, or insinuating somehow that I as a candidate for a political party that was about to win an election was sympathetic to terrorists um, or that I somehow supported their the cause of the Christchurch mosque massacre somehow. Um, and it's such an emotional charge that it didn't really matter whether it was true, right? It, it sort of struck a visceral chord immediately. Within an hour, my political, the opposing political party put out a press release saying, I need to be removed from the ballot, right? So there's no there's nothing like a, you know, there's no such thing as trial by media, right? That's a misnomer because there's no trial. Um, <laughs> there's no search for evidence. There's no, like, there's no standard of evidence. There's no presumption of innocence or right to a defense. Um, you are accused and so guilty. And so immediately there were demands that I have to be removed from the ballot. And um, so this is, you know, this is a typical example of cancel culture, which is, a situation where a person as accused, rightly or wrongly, doesn't really matter, of violating some kind of taboo. Um, so it's not a criminal act. It's an accusation that they think the wrong thing on um, you know, prickly uh, social or cultural issues, right? Often pertaining to race or gender or sexuality or immigration or something. So one of these third rail kind of issues, the accusation is someone thinks the wrong thing and not only then do people withdraw support from them, they uh, or and you know ritually humiliate and shun them on social media and in my case in the national media. Um, but then there's also calls for everyone around them to basically cut them off. So uh, there were articles about people who had liked one of my tweets. Articles are denouncing them as being supporters of a white supremacist, right, and calling on them to repudiate me and disavow me. Um, people going after trying to figure out who my other employers might have been so that they could try to get me fired from any other job or livelihood that I might have been able to have. Um, any speaking opportunity I've had over the subsequent years was picketed um, with uh, threats of boycotts. Um, and, uh, you know, so friends were pressured to leave me. They were threatened you know, by people in their social networks that if they didn't denounce me that they would have to be socially isolated in turn. So there's a guilt by association logic that operates here. Um, and again, it doesn't matter if the accusations are true, right? So, um, but the, the the kind of the cancellation though is only ever actually affected by an act of institutional capitulation, right? The sort of proverbial, the internet mob might call for your head and denounce you and call you human garbage and say you should be shot out of the sky or whatever, all of which I got. Um, they do. But, um, or hit by a bus, you know, whatever it is. Um, but, you know, you're not actually sort of cast into outer darkness until the institution that had been supporting you says, this is too much of a liability, we're going to cut ties, whether it's your university, your employer, in my case, my political party. So, 
Within four hours of the accusation being made, I was no longer a candidate. I was given 10 minutes to write a statement of you know, resigning, and, and that was it. And by the next morning, it was in the national media and stayed in the national media for uh, at least four weeks. Um, so that was sort of, that was my experience of cancellation. That was, that's my answer to your very first question. Wow. It's <laughs> a long answer. Sorry. Yeah, no, don't, don't worry about it. That's what this podcast are for. Take as long as you need. Um, th- that's just, I didn't realize it was four hours either. That is just amazing. Like the speed of capitulation like yeah not even do you remember back in the days when you know like companies or political parties would just defend people to the hill like because it was their person (laughs) um left-wing political parties in canada still do that uh it's it's conservative parties that don't um and i think it's partly that's you know the Twitter gives a very distorted appearance of reality and the media environment in Canada gives a very distorted um, view of reality. So one of the interesting things I found about this, look at, you know, in defense of being canceled, it's if you're kind of curious about um, social psychology and the psychology of the sort of the masses, it provides a fascinating vantage point from which to observe humanity, right? So like, it's a pretty good view from the pyre in a sense. Um, (laughs) <laughs> but one of the things that I was able to observe was like, publicly, if you were trying to judge what popular opinion about me was, if you were just looking at media reportage and social media, you would think that it was universal condemnation. Mm-hmm. Privately, it was the opposite. Um, and you know, every single person that I actually, with one exception, every person I've ever met in the interceding three and a half years in person who knows my story and knows about me, irrespective of their politics, has said it was a travesty what happened to you. That was so wrong. You know, it was it was appalling, and it's clearly it was clearly a kind of cynical political hit job. Um, so, I think social media drives a kind of preference falsification uh, because it looks like everyone is condemning this person. It seems very intimidating. Um, and social media doesn't, it allows for the kind of the most negative form of um, imitation to take hold mm. um, and sort of one-upmanship in the negative. Yeah. But the positive forms of imitation or mimesis don't exist on social media. And what I mean, I can elaborate on that a little bit, but um, you know, the, the positive reaction when you, when you witness someone who's being mobbed like this would be to say, hold on a second, why don't we just reserve judgment for a little while, mm. right? It doesn't get a whole um, lot of likes. It doesn't get a whole lot of likes. And and not only does it not get a whole lot of likes, it's probably never even articulated. The person who decides to practice a kind of epistemic humility, um, to be patient, to be charitable, to not judge immediately, is probably saying nothing at all. And that's not the kind of behavior that is likely to be seen and therefore not likely to be imitated. Mm. But the sort of casting of the stones is a very visible act. And once that begins, that's a cascading process and other people will jump in and will try to, um, you know, signal their belonging in a particular um, ideological affinity group by participating with even more alacrity and keenness. Right. So, so the negative forms of this are visible. 
but the positive ones, the the charity, the restraint, the sort of slowness to judge, these are totally invisible in social media. And so you just don't see it. And so you don't imitate it. And you think that everyone is throwing stones. Mm. So it's a very intimidating environment if you're inclined to speak up for someone. Um, it takes us a, a kind of courage that I think is quite rare. Well, it's... It... Your story is becoming all too familiar. I mean, not like the absolute specific details, but just the the the, the people. Like, I've had quite a few people on on the show recently who have who have been fired or, or let go just due to really innocuous, harmless, tiny things. And I'm always just like, I always would, I always want to chat to them because I'm like, right, okay, like, is this person like crying wolf? It is because there's there's like there's a whole host of people who are constantly saying that they have been cancelled whilst <laughs> promoting their latest bestseller, and um, it, which is which is hilarious. Um, and then there's obviously like a whole host of people who have have, have been removed for, from social media. And then sometimes, like maybe in the earlier days of of people getting cancelled, I was just like. I don't know, maybe they could have just toned it down a bit, like, and they would have been fine, you know? And then, but now we're at a point where, like, people could just j jump, and if they get caught, like like you have by, the, yeah, by a wave of, you know, because there's, there's stories like this happen all the time, and some of them just, like, catch fire. Um, and, yeah, to, you just, you, you're sort of, like, powerless to to stand and defend yourself because yeah. as you said like the the verdict's already been written yeah um and i like just as an anecdote you know it, it took about two weeks after the i resigned my candidacy while there was still a media firestorm ongoing um i figured i should take an opportunity to try to Look, I, you know, I'm a little bit of a prideful person. So initially, I, you know, I have all these people demanding apologies from me, and I couldn't understand that. Um, I'm a, someone who really likes apologizing when I have something to, for which to apologize, but I can't be compelled to lie. And from my perspective, that's what people were demanding. People were demanding either that I apologize for beliefs that I've never held and for harm that I did not cause. Or they're asking me to apologize for beliefs that I do hold, and neither neither of those am, am I willing to do. So, um, so initially, I was kind of like, you know, I'm not going to condescend to explain myself to these to these people, right? Um, they don't, they're, they're, it's not worth it. But then I thought, oh, you know what? I there are also just lots of people of goodwill out there who are just confused, who got one side of the story and don't have the information they need to make a judgment. And a lot of people who might've also been felt hurt by what they read, uh, again, for the reasons that I articulated, it's really unpleasant to be told that you are hated um, or to be told that, you know, a prominent public figure or someone who was a prominent public figure uh, or, 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 you know, potentially would have been um, to be told that they that they hate you, right? That's a really hurtful thing. And so I wanted to assuage the concerns of anyone who felt that way and try to explain what actually happened, what I actually believe. So I went on a local, a popular local radio show. And uh, the host was, she was very generous in having me on and we spoke for like 45 minutes. It was a fantastic interview. 
uh, as the interview was just starting, actually, I think even before it started, there were journalists with major outlets tweeting things like, why in the fresh hell are we giving a platform to an unrepentant white supremacist? So they like, no, you don't, you don't get to defend yourself. You're not allowed to, they, they have passed judgment on you. I was now in their eyes, an unrepentant white supremacist, and I should not be allowed to say otherwise. Um, right after the interview aired, the mayor of my city, a mayor of, of a city of like 1.2 million people was apparently encouraging people to boycott this radio host. A petition campaign was launched to drive her off the air or force her to apologize for having the temerity to interview me. So yeah, you're not allowed to defend yourself when you're subject to those kinds of accusations. And and I think part of the reason why the res- response to that was so strong was because I very obviously am not an unrepentant white supremacist. <laughs> what? And, what? And no, get this, out, get out. <laughs> but like, but you know, there's a certain category of people for whom their entire identity is bound up in the idea that they're fighting against evil mm-hmm. and they need you to be a monster for that fantasy to be fulfilled, right? Um, They have to believe that their opponents are actual Nazis and fascists and closeted white supremacists who want to shoot up mosques because that provides them one with the sense of unearned moral righteousness. um, And it allows them to believe that they are good people, no matter how mendaciously or maliciously they behave because they're fighting against evil. So they have to, they need they needed me to be this sort of personification of evil because um and they don't want me to be a good person. They they need there to be evil in the world because that's what provides them with a sense of meaning and purpose. And as I said, the the unearned sense of um of moral correctness and certainty that they so crave. So I think that's why there was a really strong backlash against this. And um and that continued. And thereafter. I was told by, um, uh, and actually that interview was pulled offline. Wow. Um, so it was totally memory hold, uh, as was every other interview that I did initially for the first like six months or a year of this. Whoa. Uh, really? Uh, every one of them came under pressure, public pressure or threats or something. And um, and then I was told by uh, media producers, columnists, journalists who were friends of mine, they'd say, you know, I know that this isn't what's being said about you isn't true but I don't want to invite this kind of backlash. So they're scared of like sorry. reporting the truth. Wow. That yeah. is, that is bad. That is, if anyone's listening right now that would like to try and memory hold this, please come at me. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I'd love to go back actually to, to uh, like a couple of things you said. Um, first off, uh, it sounds very much like you are a trucker by by the by the um, that i'm a trucker you're a trucker yeah mm-hmm. that's 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 like code for white supremacist these days right in oh Canada. is it okay no, I, no i'm talking about trudeau calling all the 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 trucker oh, protesters yeah. uh what do you call them yeah i'm pretty sure he called yes. them fascists and wi- he said racists. he said that they're um, that they're often racists and misogynists and people who don't believe in he was speaking in French. What term did I? I can't remember if he said in science or in progress. Um, it's the latter part of that statement that I found very intriguing. This claim that um, the truckers don't believe in progress, and so they're and that's like that's that's at the same level as being a misogynist or a racist. It was a very to me that was the most telling statement. But yes, um, 
anyway, I'm, I'm. No, actually, do you know what? That ties very nicely with something you said earlier about how quite a lot of this new ideology, the the sort of like modern sensibility is is about, or not even the modern sensibility, but like the the progressive, like the hyper, like progressive, super duper, like we have to erase everything that came before, you know, yeah. 2010, because it was all horribly racist and misogynist. I'm and pretty still sure is, 2010 actually. was terrible too. Yeah, I'm sure it yeah. was. But really we're, up until still, like... Yeah. Until yeah. now, we're still awful. Until now, yes. yeah. So we have to be constantly erasing the past as it happens. Like, yeah, it's a it's a perpetual revolution, right? It never ends. Yeah. So this is intriguing to me because this idea that people are severed from the the you said severed people from the wisdom or their inherited wisdom of previous generations, and it sometimes it really really does feel like that is is what. A growing portion of the left, at least, and I don't know, maybe there's some people who are not on the left who would like this too. I hate to, bo- you know, put people in boxes, but they essentially are. are we're further now than we have than I'd say any generation has ever been from understanding the world, the culture, and the values of like our parents' generation. Yeah, and. I guess, do you think that this is by design? Because I've heard people saying that this is on purpose, right? That, that this is to try and like make us forget our heritage and our culture and like the the achievements of the past and the wisdom of the past and, you know, the reason that there were certain things that were the way they were. Not that all things aren't, you know, can't be improved on, but yeah, there was some wisdom in a, in a lot of things that were just sort of like throwing out and, and, and would be happy seemingly to just like cast aside. Do you think this is on purpose? Like, is, is this like a concerted effort? Okay. So your question was, is there a deliberate effort to have us repudiate the past and so forget about it? Yeah. Because um, you said, you, you so said you're an, seeing my, these, these signs. Yeah. Like, do you think it's- Well, deliberate? my answer is yes and no. I, I think there's certainly a lot of people who very unabashedly would say that we need to sever and repudiate the past, that, you know, the, who view the past as basically emblematic of um, an oppressive, backward, dark time, and that we need to get as far away from it as possible and progress towards some undefined endpoint, but away from the past. Um, I, I mean, there's a lot of people for whom this is their guiding principle. They're progressives and they can never define what this sort of what their actual kind of telos is or what their goals are. They just know that they want to get away from where we have been. So there's obviously people like that. Um, I think that though that generally it's it's a lot of um ideas are powerful and people become enthralled to particular ideologies. Um, I think you know, there are also, generally, I think these things are better explained by the presence of powerful impersonal forces in the world, right? Not sort of back rooms plotting to hmm. lead, you know, make people deracinated <laughs> um, and, and rootless and atomized, but, but that's just the effect. Um, but yeah, you know, I, I think like if you, if you go back and look at, the Cultural Revolution in China is the most obvious and stark example of this. And it was a 10-year campaign with you know, ebbs and kind of it waxed and wanes at, at different points. But 
the general thrust of which was to completely sever China's connection to its material, spiritual, aesthetic, intellectual traditions, so that a new man and a new society could be created. Um, and it's a view of human nature as being totally malleable, right? And so the idea is that if you can just sort of start fresh, you can remake man in the way that you want to. Um, but it was driven by, you know, there's like this campaign against the four olds, the old customs, old habits, um, and Red Guards, uh, particularly during the kind of the height of this in the in the late 60s, would be roaming the countryside, searching out anyone who might have you know, a musical instrument or an article of worship uh, or anything that was reminiscent of, or, you know, a bourgeois mentality, but more particularly of um, an affection to the past. These were counter-revolutionaries and reactionaries, and if discovered, they would be trotted out and ritually humiliated and condemned and made to engage in, you know, performative forced apologies. Um, you know, there's parallels to cancel culture, the difference being that in the cult context of the Cultural Revolution, you also have people being beaten to death and killed. Um, but, um, but you know, there, there, there are obviously a lot of similarities to what we're doing today to say that, you know, we're, we're hollowing out libraries and blacklisting books and um, tearing down statues and developing a kind of caricatured view that our ancestors were stupid, evil, malicious, racist, and not worthy of that, that basically this inheritance that has been passed to us is something that doesn't deserve our gratitude or reverence or respect or deference. Um, so yeah, it's a, there's a real attitude of, um, there's a hubris to it. Um, and, you know, that's dangerous, I think, because we don't realize just how precarious and how fragile civilization is. These things are very hard to build. They're very, very easy to destroy, right? We, we <laughs> are right? We're gonna, like we're civilization gonna is always a new generation deep. Yeah. Um, and I'm, you know, that's something that I'm like very keenly aware of. So um, yeah, the, the, uh, the approach of trying to treat the past, like it's something that uh, we absolutely know better than anyone who came before us um, is uh well, obviously, it's. I think it's very foolish. So, but yes, definitely a condition under which totalitarianism thrives, and it's something that every totalitarian system tries to achieve. But we have done it ourselves without need of centralized political coercive power. Because mm, it's trendy. <laughs> we could, if someone had realized this, they could have sold the Chinese on this years ago. That would have been much less, much more cost-effective for them. Uh, <laughs> so. Well, I, you know, liberalism has been sort of hacking away at the roots of of our culture and our civilization for centuries. So it's been it's been a much longer, more subtle process, and for that reason, much more invidious. Mm. Well, I mean, classical liberalism is about you know entertaining everything. So hopefully, that well, theoretically, is. We should be fine with everything, but yeah, it's 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 taken a, a different turn, and and we're also I think uh, we're going to find out just how easy a civilization is to destroy in the the coming months and years. Um, some of our our leaders in the developed world seem to be doing their absolute utmost to see just how fragile the system is. Uh, it's, just, it's like, do you ever get the feeling? It's like, have you ever seen that film Rat Race? No, what's the film? Um, it's it's so packed with like great actors. Actually, it's got like 
It's got John Cleese, um, Seth Green. Uh, yeah, loads and loads of people. Anyway, John Cleese plays this like billionaire who like picks like 10 or 12 people at his casino um, for, at random and then tells them to race across the country, like gives them all keys to a locker. And there's like, yeah, there's like, I don't know, like $3 million in this locker on the other side of the country. Go. And they all don't believe him. And then like they get out into the hall and then they all go crazy, like trying to get across the country. And the film's about like their, yeah, their fight, the race to get to this $3 million. But him and a bunch of other billionaires or, or millionaires and like just rich people are sitting around betting on it. So they're all like picking people uh, that they thought were going to be there. Oh, they're <laughs> going to win. They're going to win. And then they just, they, they, we thought you follow them like gambling on all the craziness as it goes along. And do you ever, do you ever think sometimes that just like, there's like billionaires sitting around being like, or politicians even, they get drunk and they're like, do you reckon we could crash the pod? Be like, no, 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 no. You're, you're crazy. You couldn't crash the pod. Be like, watch me. And then, <laughs> that's, uh, that's actually what it feels like sometimes. Obviously I doubt that's what they're really doing. So I, I think that you're, you might be a more of a believer in, in human competence than I am. Um, <laughs> That's the, 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 I mean, this is the this is always the big problem with conspiracy theories. Is that there are, of course, there are conspiracy theories, but like oh, for the most part, people are just incompetent. <laughs> um, so really elaborate mass cover-ups are very hard to execute, and um, yeah, I, this is why I, I think a lot of things are more easily attributed to impersonal forces that have their own internal logic and momentum rather than to you know sort of sinister people somewhere plotting mm. against us, but. Yeah, no, I mean, I yeah. tend, to, I tend to believe that there's 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 a lot of very powerful competing forces who all want the best outcome for themselves. That's basically, and and I find it difficult to see them all working completely in conjunction with each other. I think it's yeah. more likely to be a whole bunch of competing powerful interests whose 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 interests happen to overlap in certain areas, but most of the time they're all just like vying for their own wealth power and you know whatever kicks they get out of it their ego whatever it happens to be at that level of, of like wealth and and stuff but i was curious if there's other sort of signs of of totalitarianism within our society like aside from this sort of like desire to sever people from the past like is there is there other things that you see yeah. that, that that worry you so i'll i'll, I'll break it into two big categories of things. Um, the first is think about what kind of people are easiest to control. And um, the way that I would explain this is that totalitarianism thrives in an environment where people are atomized um, and very alone. So Hannah Arendt identified this too in her Origins of Totalitarianism. She talks about how the ideal subjects of totalitarian regimes are kind of the atomized mass of people. Um, so, and what she's talking about, and this goes back to um, you know, Edmund Burke, even um, Burke's critiques of the revolution in France um, and his sort of foreseeing that it would lead very quickly to a tyrannical state was the insight that our freedom is preserved through localized institutions, civil society institutions, family, church, local community, neighborhoods, um, you know, the, the union, whatever it is. Um, these insulate us against the absolute power of the state or of the market, I'll add. Um, 
And these mediating institutions have become frayed and weakened, right? So the, the families are much weaker, um, less integrated. Uh, people are much less likely to attend a church or to be religiously observant in any tradition. Um, you know, neighborhoods are like most, a lot of people don't know their neighbors. So you don't have that sense of kind of local social solidarity. Um, so that's one layer of it, but I, I'd go deeper. Um, you also want to atomize people and by sort of making them unable to orient themselves in terms of place, time, relation in relation to others, and unable to orient themselves with reference to what is true. So um, on the first one, on place, we're sort of, we're rootless people in that we live in a culture that has valorized mobility and, you know, being able to move around and not be connected to an actual, a physically embodied place. So we're sort of, we're kind of drifting in the wind a little bit in that sense. Um, our mediating institutions, family, faith, community, these are all weakened. Our sense of where we are in time is weakened by the what we described earlier, the attempt to kind of restart the calendar and repudiate and forget the past. And to, we've forgotten that we're actually mankind and society, we are part of an intergenerational compact, one that binds generations that come before us, those who are dead, those who are living and those who are yet to be born. And instead, we're basically now, I think, quite consumed with our own generation and what, what we're doing now. So we've forgotten how to orient ourselves with reference to a broader view of time and intergenerational solidarity. But the most important of these is that we can't orient ourselves with reference to what is true and good. Um, and this is where I'll go back and I'll, I'll you might disagree with me and that'll be fun. Hmm. But um, this is where my I, I have a very strong critique of the value subjectivity that is baked into so much of liberal thinking. The idea that you know, everyone has their own truth, their own sense of the good life. Uh, these are all equal. No one's right. There's no objective values. Um, and that exact that is exactly what a totalitarian ruler would want, is people who can't say, this is true, this is just, this is good, um, where all of those categories are treated as matters of mere opinion. They're just subjective. They're fungible. Um, and the reason for that, I think, is obvious if you think about it. If there's no such thing as justice, then how are you supposed to critique a ruler who does unjust things? If there's no objective standard that is standing above mankind, above worldly power, there's no sort of you know divinely or transcendently given source of, of moral truths, well, then how can you critique the exercise of power over you? Um, what's the, the language that you can use to say, this thing that this ruler is doing is wrong. It is unjust. The thing that they're saying is not true. What they're doing is not good. It doesn't accord with moral laws or whatever. So by getting rid of those categories and saying that all of those categories are just a matter of subjective opinion, well, then you don't have any objective truth or justice or goodness. All you have is power. And whoever wields power gets to decide what's true, what's good, what's just, what they're going to do. And you don't have even the vocabulary anymore to express resistance to that. So um, value subjectivity is also, I would say, something that makes people highly susceptible to a state where it's basically, it's just a conquest of wills uh, because there are no absolute values anymore. And um, so I would say then that the 
way of, and finally, okay, the last one, we've talked about sort of the loss of mediating institutions, the loss of any objective sense of what is true that we can root ourselves in and use that to evaluate um, how power is being exercised. The other thing though, is that we've lost mediating thoughts. Um, And this is maybe the most insidious of all of these is our capacity to remember things, to contemplate things, to have sort of silent moments where we can actually reflect seriously on what's happening around us. All of these have been dramatically eroded, especially in the last 15 years or so with the advent of smartphones and the ubiquity of uh, you know, Google and all of these things that that have um, so eroded our attention that we can't really remember anything. And I think too, like what what an ideal situation if you wanted to be able to manipulate and control people that people who have no memory are never going to hold you accountable for anything. Um, that they're, they're so we're so distracted by a daily flow of essentially useless information um, that we forget injustices and iniquities the moment they seem to pass. Um, so I think those are some of the conditions that work very well to foster totalitarianism. Um, and, and again, I'll go back that one of the really essential things there is where people can't agree on first principles, that truth exists, that there actually are some objective moral standards that should govern us, um, that justice is a real thing that exists and that it's a good, if you can't agree on that, then any every dispute in society becomes interminable or it can only be resolved through force and through coercion and power. That's what cancel culture is to me. It's an attempt to say there are no objective moral truths, but we're going to coerce and scare and intimidate people into believing what we think, what we want them to believe. It's just, it's a, it's a naked assertion of power over people that doesn't depend on any substantive appeals to what's true or just or good. Um, but as, to, as far as sort of what is really underlying all of this, um, I'm a, so the most useful theoretical lens that I apply to the problem of totalitarianism is one developed by Eric Vogelin, particularly in his book, Science, Politics, and Gnosticism. So Vogelin was an Austrian political philosopher who fled Nazism and went over to the United States and uh, was you know, obviously given his personal background, also fixated by this problem of totalitarianism. And as you might be, if you yes, as you might be, if you're, <laughs> yes, if you have to have to flee the Nazis. Um, and what what he described it as was, um, in a way, it's uh, all of what he would term contemporary Gnostic movements. So he's using Gnosticism as an ancient heresy, um, and he's sort of reappropriating the term. And it's it's not a one for one parallel, but there are similarities between the ancient heresy and the contemporary one. So um, what he terms are the modern Gnostic movements are all of these ideological movements from um, progressivism to positivism, national socialism, communism, socialism. Um, he would say that they're defined by a few qualities. One is that there's a general dissatisfaction with the way the world is. Now that's totally understandable, right? Like the world appears to us to have lots of injustice and unfairness in it. There's a lot of, you know, uh, the human condition is marked by suffering, right? Um, So that's an understandable one. But whereas a lot of sort of classical or religious or philosophical approaches to the problem of human suffering is to say that we suffer because of the kinds of beings that we are, 
that we're fallen somehow, we have sin or karma or whatever you want to call it. And we need to practice internal moral rectitude to try to resolve that. The Gnostic temptation is the opposite. It doesn't look inward at the human condition or say that maybe we as human beings are, you know, imperfect, fallen, ignorant, whatever. It says that no, it's the world that's wrong. It's the ordering of the cosmos and of the universe itself that is evil. And the next step in that process is to say that somehow we as human beings, we have the capacity through mastery of knowledge or gnosis to fix the world, to recreate it, to solve these iniquities. It's disordered and wrong, but somehow we can make it right if we just sort of take control over and assume power over the order of being and dominion over it through our mastery of techni, of science, of knowledge, then we can remake the world and then all these problems will be solved. And so in a way, all of these movements, insofar as you think that that's an accurate description of what they're trying to do, um, in order for that project to make sense, says Vogelin, uh, in order for the order of being, the order of the cosmos, the universe of the world, to be under man's control, you have to deny that we are created. You deny the givenness of the order of being, whether it's from you know a god or some other way of conceptualizing um, how we came to be created. But you have to deny the transcendent source of our existence. Um, so it necessitates the murder of God, says Vogelin, in order for this project to seem to make sense. Um, God has to be made into a creation of man, not the other way around. Um, and then having murdered God, we can then begin to remake creation and reorder the world perfectly. Um, I hope you're, I hope I'm describing this well enough. No, so, no, no, so, no, no. I'm, so, follow, I'm following this. All. Yeah. Don't, don't worry. Yeah. So, so it's I characterized fundamentally by a kind of hatred of reality, a hatred of the order of being and a belief also that reality, that truth itself can be remade by man through power, through force, through mastery of knowledge. That's the fundamental progressive imperative. Um, and that's a sort of a common thread that runs through a lot of these ideological movements of the 20th and 21st century. So um, I think that we're absolutely uh, the dominant ideology under which we exist. And you know we're often in, sort of impervious to it, or we don't notice it because it's the air we breathe. But it's afflicted by the same kind of idea that somehow there's something wrong in the world that, but that we as human beings in our, you know, it's a, again, it's a really hubristic, arrogant view, but we have the ability to achieve mastery over nature. We can change reality. If we just pull the right levers, we can overcome nature and its limitations. Um, we can break through all of this sort of seemingly, yeah, well, through natural limits, uh, which we may experience as oppressive or unjust. And we can somehow destroy these and then we'll be free and then we'll be happy. And um, as it turns out, when you try to change the nature of a thing, you actually destroy it. And I think that's what we're doing. Yeah. Yeah, that very much, uh, may very well be the case. It's funny that we look back at like these other movements, maybe. Let's not compare, let's not use the Nancy example, but like any, any, any time. Well, it's that, overused. Yeah. So like... <laughs> Let me get, let me think of something better. So right, so you know how when we look back at people who who brought invasive species to new new parts of the world, 
in the sort of across the 18th, 19th century, maybe like a little before that, um, maybe even into the 20th century, actually, to be fair. And every single time it ended in disaster with this new species just like absolutely taking over. I know what happened. Uh, there's a there's like a massive forest in uh, Argentina that just has just been completely not 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 destroyed, but eaten by a bunch of beavers that were introduced down there. There's even there's, oh, there's I blame the Canadians. Yeah, <laughs> um, there's some there's a, there's some great lakes in America that have had carp introduced to them, and yep. they like took over the entire thing to the point where they're coming into some of like the biggest lake systems in America, and they have. I'm not kidding. They have a an electrical pulse that stops, like this high voltage electrical pulse that is supervised by the US military that stops the carp coming through this part of water so that they can't get into the I think it's the Great Lakes. Because someone introduced invasive species miles away. They took over everything up to yeah. here, like 90% or something of like the the living matter in those lakes or now carp. <laughs> they just ate everything um so yeah they, they they had to build this like pulse thing to stop the carp getting up the river it's incredible um tom scott's video on youtube for anyone that wants to look at that i'll put it in the in the description but anytime we look back at these decisions right we think holy shit these people were idiots how could they not know that you can't you know you can't play god with this particular thing and then we proceed to try and play god um, in the new thing it's it's incredible that we can we can continue to to repeatedly make the same mistakes, although I guess that is just the the human condition. We're just like forever doomed to repeat the the missteps of our ancestors. Really, yeah. well, I think you know there what you're saying that I agree with. I think is we need to recognize that the universe we inhabit is one of a kind of infinite complexity that we will never be able to fully grasp or appreciate. And so attempting to change or alter its component parts, uh, there's no way we can predict what the outcome will be. And so we should approach the world with a disposition of deference and humility, um, recognizing the limits of our knowledge. And you know, that to me is fundamentally the a kind of conservative disposition. Um, it's just it's a it's a stance of um, of epistemic humility uh, and an understanding that that um, that creation is just it is fragile and it is complicated mm. and we are just a tiny part of it. Um, yeah, you don't even need to believe believe in God to believe in that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, these just to recognize that we're part of a, an incredibly incomprehensibly complex and fragile system, and that all th living things, um, every ecosystem is. Likewise, um, similar, precarious, fragile, um, and complex beyond our reckoning. And um, yeah, you'd think that that would inspire a, a sort of a sense of reverence and of our own smallness and our own limitations. Um, but uh, no, I you know I think for the last three four hundred years, especially in the West, we've been under the sway of a kind of Baconian idea that you know no, we can use science to achieve mastery of nature we can overcome it, we can change it and remake it. Um, and, and of course we can't. And I think every, every attempt to do so ends up creating more complex intractable problems for us. 
what do you mean? Like fixing the internet's simple. <laughs> but it, it's do you know what do you know what the problem is? And and you kind of reminded me of this thing that that um had been discussed during um I was watching a podcast with uh Jordan Peterson and oh yeah, your fellow Canadian. And uh this guy Dr. Hello, Alberton, actually. Oh, oh really? That's cool. Yeah. Um, I saw him recently, actually, in London, two weeks ago, um, doing a lecture. Um, but yeah, so he was having a conversation with Randy Thornhill, um, who I actually had in this show. And they were talking about Randy Thornhill's um, thesis about uh, parasite stress and how um, the more likely or the, the more prevalent uh, infectious disease is within a country, the more... Uh, right the country tends to be politically and it's like it's not this isn't like a, a guess it's a really really demonstrable correlative effect it's 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 mind-blowing actually like really mind-blowing so, so the higher prevalence of infectious disease any category of infectious disease or just generally uh you would have to go and like l listen to him talk okay. about it more specifically because like they do define this but as far as i remember it was just broadly infectious disease um, okay. or disease. Um, so uh, the, essentially they, they believe that he believes that it's something um, about the sort of like orderliness, cleanliness, like aspect of human psychology that the people who tend to be like germaphobes are sort of yeah. very likely to be right-wing politically because they like everything in their boxes, everything very clearly defined. Um, everything has this place, everything's in its place. Um, you know, they're, they're the, the closed borders, people like isolationist, like it tends to like feed in. Not always, there's obviously exceptions, but this is like the broad trend. Um, and anyway, so they, they were talking for quite a while and um, they realized that when you get infectious disease, so theoretically within this model, so you get like a country that has like a lot, a lot of infectious disease or in the past, just when there was a lot, right? And that tends to push people further to the right, which mm -hmm. tends to result in quite like orderly societies. And it like, it actually pushes them to be more like almost like bureaucratic. And it's like almost like conservatism itself was crafted by disease to then create the Western civilization through which liberalism would emerge. <laughs> that's, an, that's an interesting theory. I, I could totally, I, there's something about that that seems true. So like what you said about if people are encountering disease, it activates, mm. uh, this is reminiscent of John Haidt's research on a kind of um, moral intuitions. If you're in, if you encounter things that you find disgusting, it activates what he would say is sort of the purity, sanctity, and versus revulsion and disgust axis. And the more activated that is, the more people tend to move to the right. Um, yeah. So yeah, because it can be people, demonstrated people with, like people who sort of shut down their disgust mechanism tend to be on the left. Um, they've kind of trained themselves, or maybe they just don't have as much of it. It's just not very active for some other reason. But uh, I think and sometimes they've, they've conditioned themselves to try to shut down their kind of gut instinct as it, as it relates to re responses of sort of um, wanting cl cleanliness or purity versus things that are disgusting or off-putting. So um, yeah, I think John Haidt found that people on the right are much more attuned to 
uncleanliness to disgust than people on the left. Um, I I kind of wonder too, though. I I I, I thought that I've been thinking about is that the prevalence of infectious disease or anything else that causes us to encounter death and mortality. I think that that can also cause people to become not just more conservative, but more religious. And to the extent that there's an overlap between those two categories, that would make sense. Um, because when you're confronted on a regular basis with death, you and with the fact of human mortality and the finitude of the human condition, um, you're forced into confrontation with questions of ultimate concern. Why are we here? Where do we come from? Where are we going? How do we prepare ourselves well to die? Um, you know, ready ourselves for the afterlife. Uh, what kind of legacy should we leave behind? Um, and it also inspires, I think those questions lead people into a more philosophic or religious disposition if you're forced to encounter and think about them on a more routine basis. Um, you know, religion may also just provide the kind of, uh, you know, sense of succor and and comfort under those conditions of uncertainty. But it also, conditions of deep uncertainty, um, well, they remind us that most things are outside of our control, no matter how sophisticated our science is, how much we seem to have achieved mastery over our condition and over nature. Um, it is actually ultimately very limited. And we need to be able to accept that we are actually just a small part of creation, um, that we are not God, that we're not masters of the universe. We can't actually control our fates. There are forces bigger than our own wills at work in the world. So I, I think an environment that encourages that kind of reflection is probably going to be one that errs on the side of being more religious and more conservative, I think. Mm. Yeah. Does that mean you think that possibly this the 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 death of God in the twentieth ish century could be a result of the fact that we have in a sense mastered a lot of science yep. and that we don't have to face death anymore. Yes, like not just Absolutely. not not just on, on like a peace war. There's less war from like on a there's less things that kill us kind of front like it's just not there like you live to your you live to your 80 and you get your medicare medicaid you get looked after you know or you know if you're in i don't know what canada has in the uk we have state pension like with yeah. the nhs yeah. you, I mean, you live to an old age and you, you get looked after you don't have to face death until way at the end that's fine well and not and not just that but so yeah like you're right that a lot of the, the th death used to be inescapable and omnipresent mm -hmm. um when people died, they typically died in the family home. Um, there are wars that killed huge portions of our populations throughout the 20th century, diseases, plagues, um, maternal and child uh, and infant mortality were rates were, um, you know, from my vantage point today, this is like, I'm, I, I'm, I'm thankful for this. I'm not saying it's a bad thing. Um, cause I, I probably wouldn't have survived my own first childbirth were it not for medical and, and technological interventions, but, but all of, you know, every, I think every advancement, there are positives and negatives. And one of the negatives to the fact that this sounds kind of, it sounds a little perverse to say, but I'm, I'm serious to the fact that we don't encounter death as much is that it, um, and we hide it from, you know, every, we all still die, of course, but now when people die, 
they don't die in the home. They overwhelmingly die at an advanced age in a palliative care or a long-term care facility or a hospital, and it's hidden from us. So through a combination of changes in the way that wars are waged to um, medical progress that reduces infant and child mortality to improve sanitation, um, we also, on top of that, have all of these social technologies that we've used to hide the fact of mortality so that we don't have to think about it. We don't have to encounter it. I remember a friend from uh, in Orange County in California talking about how the city was building high walls around the cemeteries so that passing motorists wouldn't have to be reminded that people die. Um, oh, so we're, we, our relationship to death is really seriously disordered. And one of the consequences of that, I think, is, yeah, on the one hand, the fact that we have achieved some successes in seeming to conquer um, at least some types of and categories of disease, that makes us think that like, well, yeah, you know, we can keep going. We actually can achieve a sort of immortality. We can use nanotechnology to go into our bodies and repair cells and we'll never age, right? So it encourages this hubristic thinking that actually we can play God and science can help us overcome, you know, natural limitations and biological limitations. So we've been sort of led along in that on that road um, without recognizing that there's obviously there are limits to that and there are also trade-offs to that. But yeah, I think one of the big trade-offs is because we're not in confrontation routinely with death, um, with steep human suffering, um, all of the kinds of the kind of questions that I was alluding to earlier, the questions of what is the meaning of life? Where do we go? How do we prepare to die? What is our legacy? What should we seek to leave behind? What is the actual, what are the permanent things in life? All of these questions are also relegated to the margins of our consciousness. And so what you get instead is what the sociologist Peter Berger would call the triumph of triviality. Um, that it's it's just, we start to think that the purpose of life is to sort of swim in the accroupement of a mass consumer culture and maximize our pleasure and minimize our pain. But ultimately that's an empty, meaningless existence. So reminders of death, I mean, this is why we have memento mori, like it's actually really important. It balances us psychologically and it forces us to think about permanent, meaningful things. And if I might tie that back to the experience of cancel culture, that I think is one of the um, redeeming aspects of the experience in a way is that um, to suffer even a social death, which is what I would characterize what I went through. Um, Cause you know, like you lose your job, your ability, your ability to earn a livelihood, sense of meaning, ability to serve your community, your friends, your social support networks, all of that, you know, in my case dissolved overnight um, and for a fairly protracted period of time. So it was a social death. I mean, I, I literally felt like I was a ghost. Um, I would go places sometimes and people that I knew from politics would um, not be able to meet my eye. Like it was like I didn't exist. People were directed not to meet with me in public, not to associate with me in public. Um, and so I felt like I was sort of in this liminal realm between living and dying where I was no longer part of the world. And yet I still had to be alive and watch it passing me by. Um, and that in a way though, is its own reminder of finitude and of human mortality. And that also that rec recognition that 
all of these things that we expend our nerves chasing after year after year, right? Position and status and wealth and you know social approbation and acclaim and whatever. All of these things are external to us. They can be immediately taken from us in a single night. And so what matters after that? Um, so yeah, that is the that's the redeeming aspect of the social death is that it is also a reminder of mortality in its own way and of the impermanence of worldly things. And it forces you to think about eternal things. Yeah. Yeah. And speaking of paradoxes as well, I, I was thinking of um, what you'd said about these ideas of the, the people that feel they can remake the world. The, and in, in this also weird sense that the tech utopians that believe that, you know, we can, Oh, yeah, well, we won't be, we won't age. We'll have everything, you know, we'll be coming through our nice chip or whatever comes next. We'll just know. upload our consciousness to a computer yeah, or something. Yeah, we'll, you know, live forever in yeah. silicon bodies. And, but the, the forerunners of those people, like the, the ones who came before them, that, that became like that, that, that attempt to build utopia is almost the thing that made the developed world so rich and wealthy and powerful, which helped us build the institutions that sort of celebrate the the inherited wisdom and permanence of things. But now that we're attempting to like tear them all down, but somehow replace them with our new, you know, wonderful things. Um, it's 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 funny how the the extremes might be useful in dragging us forwards, but they can also then like cut off their own head in a way. You know, they become it's like the extremes are the things that both like push us to new heights, but also like drag us back down. Yeah, and and you know, like your point's a fair one that um, this impulse to mastery of nature and you know to a sort of apply mastery of technique to to solve the problems of human suffering and you know ameliorate our condition yeah there's doubt undeniably there are some good things that have come of that um i mentioned one earlier i'm really glad that maternal and infant mortality rates are not what they were even 120 years ago um but there are trade-offs to these and i think that what we have lost in our, as we have acquired mastery of the material world is an alienation from the immaterial, um, that our material progress has coincided with a kind of spiritual impoverishment. Mm -hmm. um, and in a way, I think you'd, one of the topics that I think you had identified that you maybe wanted to talk about with today was like sort of the return of religion and politics. Well, you know, these ideolo these ideologies we've talking about are religion in a way. They're not transcendently oriented. They're about trying to build a heaven on earth, right? But, um, or to somehow escape from the limitations of, of this world. But um, that is, I think, a, it is an ersatz misguided attempt to recover meaning that we used to have, that we used to have many more means of apprehending. Um, and it's it's not going to be a very satisfying one. It's pretty thin gruel for the soul. Mm. Yeah. Mm. 
and yeah, and also the yeah, I've taken up a lot of your time here, so we can we can finish up here. But like the the the, the last thing it was that I'd I'd wanted to sort of highlight that it feels like, and this this could just be naivety, but it feels like we've witnessed or we're witnessing like a like there's a whole bunch of people like younger media figures both on both sides of the pond i mean more so on yeah like the north american side but like where it's like sort of cool to be like a like a uh, yeah like a to to many of the the people especially on the right to be christian and and like sort of quite you know committed to that like that's that's cool for for like in a way do you know what i mean it's, that's the new counterculture yeah but like is that yeah. do you think that's a result of what you you you're laying on here well, huh? That's a, that's an interesting question. Um, so when I say that, when I'm talking about the kind of the ersatz religion that we've used to replace the, uh, you know, the god-shaped hole at the center of our society, I'm mostly talking about the sort of the secular or secularly oriented ideologies. Oh right? yeah, that's why I said you know the ones that seek salvation not in the afterlife or through the grace of God or whatever. But the ones that seek social salvation at a collective scale in this world, in this imminent world, because they think this is all there is. Um, so that's, I think that's the the sort of the obvious way that you've seen this search for this misguided search for meaning manifest itself. Um, but yeah, you're right that there is there does seem now like I don't know how I don't know how much my social circles are representative, but yeah, you know I do see among the people I interact with and connect with and sort of follow on social media, there's a definite, um, almost kind of ostentatious uh, participation in, you know, like more traditionally oriented religion. Mm. Um, and I wonder sometimes if there's a little bit of, if there's a kind of aesthetic that people like about that. Mm. Um, I'm, I'm often a little wary of ostentatious religion uh, personally, but um but I think it's also I think it's also sincere, and I think it's that um, there is a sense that there is wisdom in old things, um, in old eternal, eternal, permanent things, um, and that the path back maybe runs through some of those things and requires a sort of rediscovery of some of those traditions because um, you know traditions tend to endure often because they contain some truth. Mm. Um, so. Yeah, I think there's there's some of that, um, but I I'm not being Christian myself. I feel almost that it's not quite my place to comment on what's behind that phenomenon. That's fair enough. Yeah, I wish I could call this episode "There Is Wisdom in Old Things." That would be great. Maybe I will. <laughs> sure, that's a good name. <laughs> it's a good, it sums it up well, doesn't it? It's nice to succinct. I think so. <laughs> oh. But anyway, um, Kellen, I've taken up yeah a lot of your time, so I, you've been very generous. So thank you very much. I, this was like a fascinating, fascinating chat. So so thank you so much. Good. I, I hope I wasn't uh, too all over the place for you. That was it was a lot of fun. No, 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 no. You definitely far from the least coherent guest that I've ever had. Uh, <laughs> far from the least coherent. Yes, I'll take it. Yeah. <laughs> you can put that in your Twitter bio. <laughs> <laughs> Or, you know, put that in your next political <laughs> campaign ad for when you, you come roaring back. <laughs> Will do. <laughs> if ever I run for office again, yes. I'll have your endorsement. <laughs> they can put this clip up. <laughs> anyway, uh, do you want to like point your people towards like any of your work or anything you want them to look at? 
if they're interested. Uh, I don't know. I, uh, I, I think the best place to find me for anyone who's interested is on Twitter. It's just Kaylin Ford. And uh, yeah, that's, that's about it for now. Okay, brilliant. Well, thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks for making it all the way to the end of the video. Don't forget to like, share, subscribe, and leave a comment for us in the comments below. Let me know what you thought and if you'd like to see more of this from the show. Thank you, and we'll see you again next time.